0: welcome to the table everyone on this Sunday night August 16th we are so glad that you're joining us my name is Debbie Manning I'm one of the pastors here at the table and hey we want to make sure that you have on your radar you've got it on your calendar that we are gonna be worshiping in person on September 13th at 5 p.m. right outside Bethlehem Lutheran Church in the parking lot so please be there with us that night. We're gonna do all we can to make sure everything is perfectly safe during this season of COVID. And a piece of that is that we will be meeting with our health advisory team, and they will be walking us through how to do that in a way that keeps everyone safe. So we'll keep talking about that, but that's a big date coming up. The other thing we wanted to remind you guys is during the service, go ahead and start chatting. We would love to find ways to connect and hear from you, and that's one way we can do that, is you can do the chatting on the Facebook Live and be connecting with one another. In regards to connecting, all you need to do is text 33222, and you can stay connected. Um, We'd love for you to do that, and that way you can know all the things that are going on in this community. One of the things that we have talked a lot about as Um, uh, board and as the table leadership is that we want to make sure during this long, long season that continues to check to stretch out for COVID that we stay connected with you. And so we're trying to figure out ways to do that and um, one of those things too is we want to keep praying for one another. So if you've got a prayer request, if you want to check in with us, you can email Matt, me, uh, info at the table, um, and we'll respond to that. So with all that. Um, the last thing is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting this church and the generous giving that you do. And if you want to continue to do that, if you want to up your giving, if you want to start giving, all you need to do is go to our table website, the table, press on the giving tab, and you can do that all right there. So again, so glad you guys are with us tonight, and I'm going to turn it over to Matt for the message.
1: Thank you, Debbie. Okay, let me get my pieces in place here. Um, Hey, good evening, everybody. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And as we say every Sunday night, we are so grateful that you are choosing to set aside some time out of your day to be with us in this format through a screen. It, It matters to us that Uh, that this still matters to you, and so thank you for being with us. If you've been with us before tonight, and you've been with us throughout the summer, then you would know that we are on the lectionary calendar right now. We are going through the Big C Church's rhythm of scriptural readings, and tonight that leads us to the story of Joseph. Joseph, Debbie, who did I say last night? Joseph Donnie Osmond in the Technicolor Coat. That dates me a little bit. We're going to go to Genesis 45. But actually first, I just kind of want to lay out the lay of the land for you. I want to tell you the story about Joseph because this is one of my favorite stories. Joseph's story has the ingredients of all great stories. It's got the despair and dejection and and the rejection, the deception, ultimately leading to the restitution and restoration. It's a beautiful story that has resonated for 3,800 plus years. In fact. One of the reasons why I think human beings find such an uh, affinity for this particular story is because it has such universal elements inside of it. From what I've gathered this past week and just kind of trying to dive and dig up some, some background info on this story, so much resonance with so many human beings that the Joseph story is actually present in five different major religions dating back 38 plus years. We're talking about Baha'i priests and Muslim mystics and Jewish sages and, Jew- and Jesus followers. People have resonated with this story because while this story is 3,800 plus years, it also feels like it's 35 years old and like it's 28 years old and 67 years old. We read the Joseph story, not because we're hung up on what's going to happen to Joseph, but because we see So much of who we are inside of this story, and we wonder what it means for what's going to happen to us. And so, looking at this story, we're going to start in the Genesis 37 uh, general range. We are first introduced to Joseph at that point right there. Joseph is the second youngest boy of 12 older brothers, or 12 brothers in total. He is the fourth generation of the patriarchs, which is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now Joseph. When Joseph first comes onto the scene, if you saw Donny Osmond's work, you would know this. When he first comes onto the scene, we see him standing before us with his chest puffed out. And he's wrapped in this coat of many colors. He is the 17-year-old favorite child of Father Jacob, who gave him this coat, not just because he loved him so much, but to make the point that he loves him so much more than the other 10 brothers. Joseph is the favored child, and the reason why is pretty clear out of the gates. Joseph is the first child of his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph is the one that he has been waiting for, because it comes from Rachel. He was the envy of all of his brothers, This is apparent right in the opening scene. The brothers is like an ancient story of hate it because you ain't it. The brothers are not interested in Joseph because the father is so consumed by Joseph and we see that out of the gates. But also to be fair, like it's not just Jacob's love for Joseph that is riling up the brothers. Joseph is also kind of a punk. I mean, there's one afternoon in particular where the brothers, the liked ones but not loved ones, they're out tilling the soil, breaking a sweat when Joseph steps onto the scene and he's wearing his Gucci coat and he's feeling all high and mighty and he says, hey guys, guys, if you could just, please, uh, Reuben, please put the shovel down for one second. I have a dream that I'd like to tell you about. So what had happened last night when I fell asleep is that I saw some things that in the things I saw, this is crazy, you're not gonna believe it, but at some point, on some day, all of you, you're going to bow down before me. Isn't that just crazy? The guys are not, uh, they're not psyched about it. But Joseph, he doubles down. He comes back another day and he says, hey, hey, remember that dream I told you about all the brothers bowing down before me? Let me clarify because dream number two just came through. And it's not just you guys that are going to bow before me. Mom and dad are going to bow before me too. This is a a side note, but it's sincere all the same. There are some things that you ought to let just bake in the oven a little bit before you pull them out and feed the masses with it. There are some things that God might speak to your soul, might give you a vision of. It might tell you something in private that is not to be readily available for public consumption. What we see in the story of Joseph is the reality that just because you are spiritually gifted does not mean that you are spiritually mature. And until you are spiritually mature, you should not be exercising the gifts that were given. There is a practice of prudence. There is a practice of Jesus' own mother, Mary, who saw the, witnessed the events that was happening from her own womb. And instead of running into the town like the shepherds next to her, she treasured all the things in her heart and she thought about them often. Joseph did not have that kind of maturity quite yet. And it cost him. But one of the things I think I think about when I, when I think about, because what we do find out in the story of Joseph is that he's not dumb. Like he's a smart guy. He's, he's eventually given the keys to the Egyptian kingdom. He's not like, he's not dumb. So why did he ask that dumb question? Why would he go to his brothers and say, you guys, please lean in and listen, because I'm going to tell you that at some point you're going to bow down before me. I mean, pardon my projection here, but as somebody who's had some experience being a younger brother, and as somebody who is watching my second eldest son, Sawyer, look up to his older brother, part of me wonders if the impetus behind him sharing this dream has something to do with the hope that if they know about the dream, perhaps then they'll wanna know about me. If they see that I'm more than just a wallflower, if they see that I'm more than just a doormat or daddy's darling, then maybe I could actually be one of the guys. Yes, they're all my half brothers born of Leah and her servants, but, but I, I, I'm a brother. I'm one of the guys still. If I tell them about what I've seen when I'm asleep, will they start to see me when I'm awake? You see, when you start to actually read these ancient stories and you ask questions like that, you start to see how the questions that Joseph is asking are the same ones that you and I have been asking this whole time. It's the same questions, different scenario. Joseph ghosts them with his dream. And perhaps that is the inciting incident behind it. And if it is, it doesn't work out. Because what we come to find, and as many of you already know, there is that one afternoon when Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. And when his brothers see Joseph's blurry body approaching them from afar, they immediately say, hey, guys, this is our opportunity. Here comes the dreamer. Let's make this whole thing go away right now. Let's kill him and what's crazy about this scene is that when this vo- this uh, this this plan is concocted and voiced out loud there is nobody objecting in the room nobody except for Reuben the eldest Who says, why why would we kill him? Like, I don't know if we should, let's not lay our hands on him. Now, clarity, what Reuben is doing is he's playing to an ancient superstition. He is calling the brothers to mind, remember Cain and Abel. Remember that the blood cries out from the ground and, and reaches God above. And so to avoid dead Joseph crying out and telling on us from six feet beneath the earth, maybe we just put him in the pit instead. And they end up doing that. Joseph comes, they strip him of the robe. They, they strip him naked, and they throw him down into this pit that is dark, it is deep, it is dry, but it pales in comparison to the psychological pit that Joseph now finds himself tumbling down inside of. You don't know, wanna read this story, and you think about it not just because this is the obligatory thing we do, we should read scripture stories, we should memorize scripture stories, but when you actually meditate on them, and you listen to the white space in between the black words, please picture that scene. Please picture 17-year-old Joseph running towards his older brothers and being thrown into a pit. Picture Joseph sitting on the bottom of that pit. Listen to Joseph's voice as he cries out in the silence saying, Guys, don't do this. Uh, Don't do this. I can be better, I, I won't be a bother, I could stay out of your way, I'll mind my own business, I won't, just don't do this. You can imagine him calling them out one by one, you know, they're using their names and, and calling good memories to mind. Nephtali, Dan, Gad, Reuben, Simeon, don't do this you guys. It doesn't have to be this way. And all he hears is silence, until he hears the clashing of silverware up above as they're preparing for their midday Meal, somehow avoiding any cracks of consciousness as their baby brother sits at the bottom of a pit. Eventually, Judah's voice, he breaks the silence as he says over the meals, you know, guys, I don't know. This, maybe this doesn't make sense. And I can, in my head, I picture Joseph perking up and thinking, is this the oasis in the middle of the desert? Only to shortly thereafter find out it's just a mirage. Because Judah says, why would we kill Joseph when we could trade him in for some cash instead. And the next scene shows Joseph being pulled up out of the pit, and in some paradoxical way, though he was being lifted out, it felt like he was sinking deeper down. As a group of Midianites came through and threw him in the back of the slave cart where he sat next to a group of strangers, perhaps younger brothers from other faraway lands, and they started to drive away. I think about that slave cart trip. I I think about that how slow and how heavy that moment must have been. I think about Joseph turning around, and looking through the bars of that back window of the cart, and seeing his brothers laughing and divvying up 20 shekels, and going, "Was that all I'm worth? 20 shekels for my life?" And it's over. You know, I read this quote not too long ago by Michelangelo, who said. Sisterhood and brotherhood is a condition that people have to work at. And when you read a story like this, you have to kind of wonder how much work actually went on in this family. How how much did they put into it? For 17 years, Joseph ran after his brothers, but he was never received. For 17 years, he chased after them, but was never chosen. For 17 years, he tried to make them laugh, talk like they talk, go to the places that they go, but he was never one of the guys. And now after all those 17 years, his whole entire life is reduced to this one moment here, this small moment here, where he wonders, what do I do with life now? All of this pain. And I just think it's kind of one of my pastoral responsibilities to ask you, have you ever been in that carriage before? Have you been in the aftermath of a wound like that? And all you can do is just say all of that time, all of that hope, all of those plans, all of those moments, all of those memories, and now this? Like, what was the point of that? All I feel is pain now. All I feel is loss now. All I feel is grief, and it was supposed to be a gift. What will you do with that peace that you don't know what to do with? I ask because I know it's there. We are all walking around with limps in our steps. Our wounds may vary in size and circumstances, but nobody gets out of life without a few cuts along the ways. And oftentimes, like Joseph It's the ones who wield the largest of wounds that are the ones we never dreamed would. The ones that we trusted and loved and looked to. The ones that we shared our dreams with. How is it that the ones who mean the most to us so often are the most mean to us? I mean, just let me ask you, has there ever been anybody with a voice that has mattered to you in your life and you've seen them misuse the power that you gave them? I don't know all of your stories. You you don't know all of mine. But I do know that we all start out with that sprint when we are wrapped in the Father's love. Wrapped in that coat of many colors. But then life comes and trips us up. And at some point we end up in a pit. And it reminds me actually of what Heather McKinley said last night in our midweek. Where she said, life so often is this dance between these parallel tracks of sorrow and joy. Joseph knew that well. Joseph knew that the blessing of heaven did not exempt him from the tax of how And the the years that followed, they kind of go to that point. I mean, from 17 to 26, for the next nine years, he serves as the top servant in Potiphar's house until at the age of 26, he's wrongly accused of rape. He's then thrown into a prison where for the next four years, he loves his cellmates and has hopes of getting out because of it. But his cellmates forget him the moment that they get free. And then at the age of 30, he is finally remembered when the Pharaoh of Egypt, the head honcho in the land has these vivid dreams. And somebody says, you know, there's a boy in prison who knows something about dreams, he might be able to help you out. And Joseph comes out, and he nails the interpretation. Pharaoh ends up putting a ring on his hand and a robe on his back, and he makes him in charge of all of the land. When Joseph says that the next seven years, there will be abundance, but the seven years that follow, well, it's not going to be so good. At the age of 30, it feels like things are finally coming together for Joseph. At the age of 30, it feels like Joseph is finally on the other side Of the pain of the wound of the slave cart of the pit. And we see this actually because at the age of 30, we see in the text where he has his first son and he names his kid Manasseh, which means forgotten. Because in Joseph's words, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And I just wish it were that easy. I wish I could believe him. But I think Joseph falls for the same lie that we all fall for, that if we get enough pats on the back and money in the bank, if if enough people know our names and celebrate our success, if we are seen as important and worthwhile and essential, perhaps then we can finally be free of that one time we were told that we are expendable. If we gain enough present wins right now, perhaps then we can get past that old wound that we've been dragging with us all these years. Name him Manessa because I can't even remember what happened when I was 17. But then comes the day when he sees these faces that he cannot forget. A famine comes over the land, just as Joseph said it would, and a group of men come into Egypt from the Levant in the north. And while there's barely any meat on their bones, their eyes are unmistakable. It's the brothers, it's the pushers, it's the ones who sent him away. With hats in their hands, they bow before Joseph, the viceroy now of Egypt who is covered in his makeup and royal regalia. And the Bible says that when they came in, they didn't even recognize Joseph. And I can't help but wonder if Joseph is just going, of course you don't. You didn't notice me when I was a kid. You didn't notice me when I was 15. You certainly didn't see me when I was 17. Why would you ever, why would I think that you could see me now? You don't see me, you've never seen me. The brothers come in with these eyes of apathy but Joseph has always carried himself with the eyes of affection. Apathy forgets, but the affection, it remembers, it recalls, it holds on. And then you think about this moment, though, where for 22 years there has been this distance. Joseph has now spent more of his life away from his, his original family than he has with them. And then all of a sudden, the circle comes complete. His brothers step in, and they bow before him, and they ask for food. They ask for help. Think about what these moments are like when you are taken back. To, I had so we, Lauren's birthday was this past Sunday, and we went out to celebrate over breakfast at Turtle Bread. Beautiful morning. It was a wonderful time. But behind me, as we're having our breakfast, I hear this voice saying, "Matt Moberg, hey, good to see you, man." And I turn around, and it's a friend from middle school. Friend, I use that loosely though because this was a guy that took my girlfriend in seventh grade when I was pimply and I was off in my feelings, and she was the one I was going to marry, and then came this guy. Now, I didn't like all of a sudden ball my fists and stand in front of Lauren and say, not again. You will not do this. You will not take this girl like you took that. But there was like something, there was an emotional reaction, nostalgia. There was some kind of feeling that took me back to some kind of place. And I promise you that happened here with Joseph. Yes, he's 39, but he's also 17 again. Yes, he's 39, but he's also 21 again. Yes, he's standing in the halls of the palace, but he's also still sitting at the bottom of that pit. The years of our lives, they're not like calendar pages where we just get to tear them off and throw them away. 18 doesn't replace 17, and 19 doesn't replace 18. Like the concentric rings of a tree, we just keep going, but we involve them. That thing, that place, that memory, that moment, it still is within us. Even if we are no longer at that place, it is still still in our person. We still carry who we were into who we are. And in Richard Rohr's words, for those places of pain, for where the wound was left, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. Joseph, with the pain that has yet to be transformed, Joseph, the pushed one, he starts to push back. He falls for the oldest myth in human history, the one that says that retribution and resolution are one and the same. And he throws his brothers into prison and he starts just grilling them on different things. Where at that time it's revealed to him that there is another brother that's not with these brothers. It's the baby brother back home. And this baby brother was Joseph's only full brother. This is Benjamin, the second child of Rachel. And immediately the game shifts Joseph says you can go home out of prison I'll eventually give you some grain, but you have to at first go get your brother Benjamin. That's not enough though to torment them on empty stomachs to make that long distance trip. He also plants in their bags some silver from the royal palace to frame them up as thieves. And then he sends them on their ways. He sends them to go back to Father Jacob, who after all these years is still grieving over the loss of his beloved son, Joseph. And they make those boys look at that dad and say, number two needs to go too. Benjamin needs to come back with us. And in the text, it's fascinating that the space makes space for Jacob's tears and his hesitation when he says, don't do it, don't take him. I already lost Joseph, don't take Ben. But the boys say, if we don't take Ben, eventually this famine's gonna take all of us. And Jacob steps to the side, and the boy goes with them. And they make that long trip back. And when they get back to the place, they are fed this massive feast. It is all like this psychological gauntlet that Joseph is making them go down. And then he sends them back home one more time, now with grain filled to the brim. But this time he puts his magic cup, his like divination cup inside of Benjamin's bag and he makes his servant. He says, when those boys get in the middle of that road and they're halfway home, I want you to catch up to them. And I want you to say, hey, Joseph, viceroy of Egypt, he's missing his cup, which one of you took it? And then I want you to look in Benjamin's bag because that's where you'll find it. And that happens. They are exposed once again. Benjamin is carrying the cup that he did not take that Joseph planted on him. And they have to come back now with, with cuffs around their wrists, with sorrow in their face, surely expecting that this means death for us. But I want you to think about this moment that actually comes because it's one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. The brothers come back and they come into Joseph's presence and they immediately they prostrate themselves on the floor and they start begging for mercy which Joseph ultimately extends to 10 of them, but not to the 11th. Joseph says to them, hey, listen, guys, I am a fair man. I do the best I can with what I have and where I am. You 10, you all can go. But the kid who took the cup, he needs to stay. His home is here now. And Joseph, he then watches them. 22 years before, he watched these same men with less wrinkles and more hair Less mileage on the tread of their souls. He watched them as their younger brother lifted up his voice from a pit and said, Please don't do this. And he heard them in their silence and their callousness say, No. Leave us alone, man. He listened to them as they had their meals saying, listen guys, when when dad falls apart crying, here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna tell him that an animal got a hold of baby boy Joseph the dreamer. We'll bloody up the robe with the carcass of a wolf and then when dad holds it, when dad falls over it, when Rachel collapses on top of him, we're gonna be satisfied that that boy got what was finally coming to him and then they slapped themselves on the back and Joe has had that sound in his ear, that slap echoing for 22 years now. That was 22 years ago. And now here he is, and now there they are. And I, I'm sure that he's doing to them what we do to one another. Because what I've noticed about me is that I have a tendency to hold people where I last remembered them. To put them on pause when they put me in pain. I think we have a tendency to believe that in the aftermath of either doing the hurting or being the one who gets hurt, that it's only us that got up and got better. That we're the ones that grew up after it all went down. But that guy right there, he's still the bully that he was in fifth grade. That girl right there, she's still the addict that she was in college. I, I, I'll tell you this. I had somebody last year actually reach out to me and go like, I heard a rumor, map that you're a pastor. That's not true, is it? There's no way, knowing who you were, that you could actually be a pastor today. That's not how it's supposed to work. We have a tendency to hold people to where we last remembered them. In this moment, Joseph tells Benjamin, you got to stay and the others can go home. And when he says this, he almost expects them to move quickly for the exit, just like 22 years prior, they had moved quickly to go and eat, but they don't do that. Instead of watching his brothers leave their little brother behind as they had done so before, instead of wiping their hands of this, this other kid from Rachel, when Joseph tells them to go home, his brother's lips begin to tremble and they say no. And he says, why? And they say, you know, we can't tell you the whole story because we can't even admit it to ourselves, but our father, he's already lost a younger son and we can't let that happen again. He is far too good of a man to bear a pain pain like that twice. And the text says that in that moment that Joseph, he couldn't keep his cool anymore. The restraints were off, and he starts to weep loudly. As he comes to the realization that I think we all come to realize that after 22 years ago when he left, and he went on his painful, soul-making, formative journey that led him from the pit, to Potiphar, to a prison, and now to a palace, that when he went on his journey of going down, and then growing up, that they did too. That he wasn't the only one who rolled around in a prison for all these years. He wasn't the only one who hasn't slept well in 22 years. He is hearing his brothers in their own crooked, imperfect ways saying, we are sorry. We'd give anything to have that day back. And as Joseph is coming undone, Judah steps forward. Judah, the one from whom Christ would eventually come, And Judah says out loud what Joseph would have given anything to have heard 22 years ago. Judah looks at his brother Benjamin who's being dragged away by the guards. And then he looks back at Joseph and he says, would you keep me instead? Can Benjamin go home and I stay in his place? This same Judah who Joseph had heard from the pit say, let's not kill him, let's sell him. Now that same Judah is saying, pull him out of that pit and lower me down in it. And from behind him, the brothers say, yeah, me too. We'll take his place. Just let him go. And now Joseph has a choice, the same choice that we all have. He can exercise his power, and he can put them in that pit, or he can lay down his weapon, and he himself can start to climb out. He can choose to keep trying to hurt them and teaching them a lesson, as if any of us have been smacked and gone, like, okay, now it makes sense. Or he can... He can make the healing happen. He can make the pain spread or he can make the pain stop. And after 39 years of living in 10,000 different pits, Joseph stands up before his brothers and he strips off the regalia and he starts to use his tears to wipe away the makeup. And he walks over to his brothers and he says, Guys, it's me. It's Joseph, the boy that you pushed into the pit. I won't push you back. This stops here. And it's a journey. It's a process. It unfolds. That's the starting point, though. You know, Lewis Smedes, the theologian, the philosopher, he says that forgiveness is when you set somebody free and you find out that that somebody is you. I believe that in that moment, Joseph was both the forgiver and he was also the freed. He wins by letting his need for retribution lose, which leads me to ask if you will do the same. Will your pain be transformed or just transmitted? We all walk with a limp, and not all of our limps are created equally, but the truth still stands that if you spend your one precious life building an identity as a victim, then recovery will always be a threat. Healing will always feel unhealthy, and you will continue to fear the cure more than the disease. But I don't think we want that. I think we want to be free. Paul says in Romans that... Leave, leave space for grace and leave revenge for God. So when we choose retribution, instead of seeking rec- reconciliation, we are actually saying we don't trust God to do God's job. I want to be a community that trusts God to do God's job. And I want to lay my sword down and step into peace instead. I want to follow Joseph in that moment. Let me end with just this. Um, I read these words from Dr. Steve Marabelle Bowley, who talks about how we nurse our wounds and how we become so addicted to the things that have been done to us. And we allow these things to take our, our essence away. And he says, there is a better path for you. But he gives these words, this final plea to you and I to come out of our different pits. He says, you are not a victim. No matter what you've been through, you're still here. Yes, you may have been challenged, hurt, betrayed, beaten, and discouraged, but nothing has defeated you. You are still here. You have been delayed, but you have not been denied. You are not a victim. You are a victor. You have a history of victory because you are still here. If you want to dive into this topic more, I brought a book with me that I haven't fully read, but I've really enjoyed what I have. It's called The Gift of Forgiveness by Katherine Schwarzenegger Pratt. and It's just got a collection of stories of people who have learned to come out of their own pits. People who have learned to make peace with the past and pursue forgiveness in the future instead. And I'd encourage you to read it. With that, though, I'll have Debbie come up. You are loved, friends.
0: It's an interesting thing to think about the wounds that we carry. I think Matt used the word, the wounds that we're dragging. We all have them. And I think it's true that it's a journey. It's a journey of naming those wounds and grieving those wounds, and that's when transformation happens. And I love the idea that it's, it's in doing that. It's in the forgiveness that we actually free ourselves. And this idea that um, having space for grace, it's exactly what we do on Sunday nights when we come together for communion. This is the space for grace, a grace that we understand for a God who hung on a cross and said, forgive them, they know not what they do. And that is the life we're called to, and it's not an easy life. It's a hard life, but it's an honest life. And we have each other to do that, to walk through that transformative um, power that's given to us by the Spirit and allows us to be free. So on the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup, and he poured wine into the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. You eat the bread, and you drink from the cup. You remember that I am a God of grace. I am a God who calls you to a life of freedom and forgiveness. So as you take the bread and dip it into the cup, remember these words. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And together, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen let's worship together